0: So, I'm glad y'all are here today. It's Labor Day weekend, and I'm like, man, nobody's gonna show up, and you know, all of our regulars are gone, and we have a bunch of new faces, and it's incredible. Um, Y'all, thank you for being here today. Uh, We are in this thing we're calling the year of discipleship, where we're growing in the word of God. We are, as a church, individually going through a Bible reading plan called F260. We are in week number 36, and I wanna invite you to join us if you haven't already, or if you just need to recommit yourself to it, you don't need to catch up, just jump in with us. Week number 36, physical Bible reading plans over at Next Steps, also at friendshipwire.com slash 2022. So we are, over these next couple weeks, finishing up this series that we're in called Word Made Flesh. And what we're doing is we're looking at God in the flesh, God come in the person of Jesus. So we're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so uh, that is where we're at in this series called Word Made Flesh. And you know, over the course of your life, you're going to make many, many significant uh, decisions. You're going to answer or be faced with many significant questions. Some of those questions will be of the giant, life-changing variety. All right, some of you have made these or these are on the horizon for you. Questions like, what what will I do after I graduate? Uh, Who will I marry? Where will I live? What will I do uh, as an occupation? So there's those big questions that we all kind of come across But then there's simply the everyday, challenging, and yet equally life changing kind of choices that we make every single day. Like, who will I run with? Who are my friends? The people that I surround myself with? Who are those gonna be? What kind of path am I gonna walk in life? How will I respond to authority? in my life? What kind of attitude am I going to have? These are all questions every day, yet significant questions that we face. And what I want to talk about this morning is one question in particular that will dramatically change your life more than any other question. You know, as a pastor, I must ask you this question because the Bible asks us this question, and uh, I believe it's, it's the word of God, and so we need to deal with this question. But not just as a pastor, as just a, a man, as a regular dude, uh, I believe this is the most important question. And I want to ask you because uh, this was the most important question I've, I've ever answered in my life. It's the most weighty, the most life-changing question It came out of nowhere uh, to me. Uh, and how you and I answered this question really will affect how we answer every other question that comes our way. And so the question this morning that we're going to see, it's posed in Matthew 27. We'll see it this morning. The question is this, what shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? And so I want to invite you to just bow your heads with me. Let's pray and open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit this morning. God, thank you for the opportunity this morning that we have to worship you to open your word, your revelation, breathe out of uh, your heart, your mouth to us. God, as we open your book, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would receive whatever it is that you want to say to us. God, we want to answer this question uh, w- with honesty, with integrity, with character. and uh, God, we just open ourselves to hear whatever it is that you want to say to us from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 27, I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles or if you're following along in our digital bulletin and sermon notes, I do hear some pages turning. Good job, y'all. Also on your phone, you can turn there if you want. It'll be on the screen. Uh, Matthew twenty-seven. Let me do as I always do. Let me set the context for you in Matthew twenty-seven. Now remember, we are looking at the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So think of it this way: if if something happened in this room today, and I asked for four eyewitnesses to give me their account of what they what they saw occur, we'd hear four different stories, right? We we'd hear the main details, but some would you know add some details, some would leave things out, uh, some. Some would be like my version, which would be like the quick, brief version of it. Some would be more like my wife's, which would be the opposite of that. You know what I'm saying? Like a little more detail involved. Guys can relate to that probably. Um, And this is what we have. Four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And so it's helpful to compare those stories to see like what was going on there. And so... Last week we were in John 14 through 16. Jesus was with his disciples on the night before he went to the cross. And so as we are in Matthew 27 today, by the time we get here, Jesus has been with his disciples in the upper room. He's celebrated. They've celebrated the the, the uh, um Passover. He has instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, which we're actually going to take a few minutes to celebrate today at the end of our service. Uh, they've done this. They have moved out of the upper room to the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. If you know, if you're familiar with the story, this is where Jesus prayed. He prayed intensely to his father. He knew what was just coming the next day it was the cross. And so he was praying to his father saying, Father, like if, if this cup could pass from me in other words if i could somehow get out of this Uh, but then his ultimate prayer was but not my will but yours be done and so he's bleeding drops or he's sweating drops of, of blood because of the intensity of this prayer and what he was getting ready to face and and here in just a few moments judas would betray him and bring this whole crowd of soldiers and officers to arrest him they would end up leading him to this Jewish trial with these, these, uh, the high priest and chief priests and elders, this council. And the goal of this Jewish trial was this. And I just want to read uh, a verse from Matthew 26, verse number 59. It says this, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. So they were willing to lie or to give false testimony. Why? That they might put him to death. This was the goal. This was what this betrayal was all about. Like Jesus was this figure who came on the scene and was causing all kinds of commotion. And the religious leaders wanted to remove him from the equation. So they wanted to put him to death. And so as we come into Matthew 27, what we see is Jesus moves from this Jewish trial to a Roman trial. Why did it move from a Jewish trial to a Roman trial? It's because the Jewish leaders did not have the authority to execute Jesus. The Romans did. And so they bring him before the governor. His name was Pontius Pilate. So in Matthew 27, we're going to see this kind of unfold. Matthew 27, let's read these first couple verses. It says this. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. We'll drop down to verse number 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 15, now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, "'Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream.'" Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus.'" The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water And so what I wanna do for the next little bit is I wanna consider three responses to Jesus. We see these different characters at play in this moment and I wanna consider their responses to Jesus. What are we gonna do with Jesus? So the first one is this. And again, we're, we're, we're comparing the gospel accounts. I've kind of done the, the heavy lifting for you and just looked at the different accounts through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, feel free to do that on your own time, but I want to kind of summarize what we see in the response of these three groups of people. First, the chief priests, the chief priests, these religious leaders. We, we saw in verse number 12 that he was accused by the chief priests. And the elders so they were accusing him they were making accusation and as we saw earlier because of their intention they were willing to give false accusation false testimony why because they wanted him out of the picture and so the chief priests are accusing Jesus verse number 20 it tells us that uh, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas they were persuading. The crowd, Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 11 says it this way the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead of Jesus. So they're, they're, they're persuading the crowd, they're stirring them up about this Jesus and what he has supposedly done. They're accusing him, they're persuading the crowd. Verse 20, again, we saw this in Matthew 27. They didn't just want to remove him or put him in prison. Did you see the, the, the harshness of the language? It says they wanted to destroy him. Other translations say execute or put him to death. Man, this is such a powerful word here. They wanted to destroy him. This was the chief priests. They, they also, in John 19, they basically said, we already have a king. John 19, verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We already have a king. And if you understand the story, you know this was kind of a political play. They were trying to appeal to the king, the Roman king, the one who had the power. But make no mistake, there was truth in what they were saying. We we already have another king. It's not Jesus. It's not the Lord. And so this is the response of the chief priests, the religious people. They said, our king is not God, it is Caesar. Chief priests, all right, here's the second group we see, the crowd, how does the crowd respond? Well, we saw already in verse number 20 that they were persuaded by the chief priests. And I think this is interesting, we'll see this in a moment with Pilate, the governor, that Pilate was simply following the crowd. But before Pilate could follow the crowd, the crowd followed the chief priests. They were basically just just spitting out what they had already been told by the chief priests. It, It says that their response in verses 22 and 23, that they shouted out something multiple times. What did they shout out? They said, let him be crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. It says in verse number 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So they were so stirred up as they were shouting to crucify him that they, be, they began to become violent and started this riot. Violence started creeping in here. And then John 19, verse 12. We already saw this in John 19, 15, but they make this appeal to, to, to politics Verse number 12 of John 19. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement this morning, but this was a very politicized activity here. They were appealing to Caesar and the government and politics, and so they get in this, this uproar and we see it was, again, led by the chief priests. And sometimes we, you know, in the church, people that are sometimes pushed away from the church, like, it's because, man, I hate politics. I hate politics in the church. And yet, where there are people, there's politics. And we see that the chief priests are pushing this. And the crowd is going along with it. And Luke 23, it says this. It says in verse 23 through 25, they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And this is maybe the the saddest four words in the whole story. And their voices prevailed. Their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. That's Barabbas they're speaking of. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. So. They became urgent and demanding and their voices prevailed. This is this this mob mentality that we see here. And this is, we're no strangers to a mob mentality in 2022. They got loud. There was this uproar. They used violence to get their way. But then that very last line, again, I want to just point that out. They delivered, he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to their will, I think it's so interesting because ultimately here's the truth of the matter is it wasn't according to their will that Jesus got delivered over it was according to the will of the father it was his will that his son should take our place and so this is the response of the crowd and then you have the governor pilate How did he respond to all of this? Well, if you go back to Matthew 27, verse number 19, again, I think this is an interesting phrase that the scripture uses. It says, while he was sitting on the what? The judgment seat. It's an interesting phrase. We see that later in the Bible. The one who ultimately sits on the judgment seat is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. and. You know, this here, speaking of Pilate, this was the place where Pilate would sit to render the official verdict. In John 19, we won't look at it, but it says that this place was called the stone pavement. So this is where the judgment came. And in John 5:22, again, not on the screens, but Jesus himself said this, the father has given all judgment. Do you know where he's given all judgment? To the son, Now, remember the scene. Here is the son to whom all judgment belongs. He is the one that will one day judge all. And here he is submitting himself to a human, a man, a governor, who is sitting upon a judgment seat. And he is submitting himself to the judgment of another. And this is where we find Pilate. He is in this place of control. He is on the judgment seat. With Pilate, one of the things you see as you see his interaction with Jesus is that he was curious. Uh, There was something about Jesus that made him lean in. In fact, John chapter 18, it tells us this, that Pilate brought Jesus in. He began to ask him questions, and he says, what have you done? Why are they accusing you of all these things? And Jesus, in verse 36, answered, and he said this, my kingdom is not of this world, Uh, Listen to what Pilate says. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate's curious and history will tell us about Pilate that he was a brutal, violent leader. And yet for whatever reason, you see this this softened softened side of Pilate when he interacts with Jesus. There's something about Jesus that makes him curious, that makes him ask questions, that makes him lean in. And so what we see in the story is that he ultimately found Jesus innocent. I find no, no guilt in him, I find no fault in him, and he desired to release him. But ultimately, Pilate wanted to please the crowd. In fact, it says it in so many words, and very specific words. In fact, Mark 15, verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. So he finds Jesus innocent. He wants to release him, but ultimately he wants to please the crowd. And so he asks this question that we are posing to ourselves this morning. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ he is this the Messiah the Savior this is what he's called so what do I do with Jesus and ultimately you know the response of Pilate what did he do verse 24 tells us he stood up before the crowd and he washed his hands he said I'm innocent of this this man his, his blood is on on you not on me see to it yourselves in other words he says I'm not I'm not going to and so he, he backs up from this decision. So let me, let, let's summarize these three responses to Jesus. You have the chief priests who are viciously, vehemently opposed to Jesus. Right, They're willing to lie in order to put him under, in order to destroy him. So they're opposed to Jesus. Then you have the crowd who, they're easily persuaded. They're easily stirred up. Essentially, they are puppets. Right, The puppet masters are the chief priests who are feeding them this, and they're only crying out what they've been fed. The crowd easily stirred up, easily persuaded. And then you have Pilate, who is curious, but he ultimately kind of stays neutral. He, he's pressured by the crowd. He wants to please the crowd. He's ultimately driven by the crowd. He says, hey, listen, you decide. I'm washing my hands of the matter. So let me give a, a, a quick little aside when it comes to that position where he just says, "Hey, I wash my hands, I'm innocent." Hey, here is, is really what's going on here. Anytime we make no decision about Jesus, we are, in fact, making a decision about Jesus. We are making a decision to reject Him. And Jesus himself said it in Matthew 12:30. He said, "If you're not with me, if you're not for me, you are what?" you're against me. There is no neutral ground. Either you're for me or you're against me. And so here is this question that Pilate posed to the crowd and to which the Bible poses to us. What shall I do with Jesus? So here's what I want to do. I want to consider Jesus in this story. It would be negligent for us to read this story and not consider the response of Jesus in the midst of this moment. When you go back and look at verses 12 through 14, what was his response? It says, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave what? No answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? This is your opportunity to speak up for yourself. But he gave him, what, no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Like, you have every opportunity, every right to defend yourself against these accusations. Why aren't you speaking up in this moment? There was no answer. He did not attempt for even a moment to defend himself. Why not? It's because if he did, then there was this possibility that he would go free and that you and I would not. Isaiah 53, the prophet, speaking of this forthcoming Messiah, he prophesied this and it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Because if he opened his mouth, we would have been the sheep going to the slaughter. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to take that. This goes back to the night before when he prayed to his father and said, your will be done. What was the Father's will? That he would not even open his mouth, that he would suffer in our place for us. We saw in John 18, he said, I've come. My kingdom's not of this world, I've come. My purpose for my coming was to bear witness to the truth. And it says, before he went to the cross, verse number 26, that Pilate released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I don't want us to miss four words there. Before he ever gets to the crucifixion, before he ever gets to the cross, it says, and having scourged Jesus. This is again like that short version of the story. And yet so much happened in these four words. I want to show you a picture of what a Roman scourge looks like. This is kind of a replica of what would be called a Roman uh, flagrum or flagellum. And I want to read you this quote about what Jesus experienced in these four words. This is from a guy named Colby King of 330 Ministries. He said this The Roman scourge, also called the flagrum or flagellum, was a short whip made of three or more leather straps connected to a handle. The leather straps were knotted with a metal and sometimes sharp bones, such as the knuckle bone of a sheep. The flagrum would sometimes contain a hook at the end and was given the terrifying name scorpion. Scourging would quickly remove the flesh, leaving skin hanging like ribbons and sometimes even exposing the internal organs. It was a powerful weapon of torture in a brutal punishment carried out by professionally trained soldiers where the victim would be stripped naked, tied or shackled to a sturdy column or between two columns. Y'all, this messes me up every time I've read this quote. Two soldiers would then beat the victim continuously. According to Jewish law, and we've seen this in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul, According to Jewish law, you could not beat someone more than 40 times, so the Jews always stopped at 39, lest they miscount and accidentally sin. The Romans, however, had no such law. This punishment was not so much about the number of lashes as it was about beating the person within a step of death and then backing off. The, the church historian Eusebius put it this way, He said, for they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. Some of you have heard of this this scourge, it's called a cat of nine tails. I've always heard it called a cat of nine tails, and yet that's not actually true. A cat of nine tails was... You know these leather knots. It was it was used by British Royal Navy in the 17 and 1800s, and it was far less severe than this flagrum, this Roman scourge. And so, what we see here is that Jesus was scourged before he ever went to the cross. And if he had spoke one word, there was the possibility that he would be set free, that the scourging would stop, that the crucifixion would not occur. And so for your sake and for mine, he endured. He allowed himself to be scourged. And so Jesus' response in all of this, no answer, no defense. And so who are you in this story? Think about the response of the people. We have the chief priests. They were opposed to Jesus. And maybe that's where you're at this morning, that you are firmly opposed to who Jesus is. Maybe you don't even believe in him. Maybe you're in that category. Maybe you're part of the crowd that whatever my people around me say or whatever, um, you know, I want to please others, so I'm going to go with the crowd. Or, Or maybe, you know, like Pilate. Pilate was like I'm staying out of this, I'm neutral, call me Switzerland, I'm out of this, I'm not not gonna decide either way. Here's the reality is that maybe you and I at times respond to Jesus in all of these different kinds of ways, right? The question is, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And I don't know which of these responses that you tend to lean toward. But here's what I do know. Here's what I know about you. I know which character you are in the story. It's not the chief priest. It's not the crowd. It's not Pilate. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Think about who he was. Verse number 16 said this about Barabbas. It says, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. You know what notorious means? Well known, widely known. Like everybody knew, there was no question about the character of this man. He was the scum of the earth. He was a notorious prisoner. Mark 15, verse number seven, That says this, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. He was a rebel. He was a murderer. He was in prison, John 18, verse 40 says this, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a what? A robber, he was a thief. He was a thief and a a robber, a rebel, a murderer. He was clearly guilty, right? He was notorious. He was clearly guilty. He was clearly deserving of prison. He was clearly deserving of death but there was one thing that he did not deserve. You know what it was? He didn't deserve to go free. And yet, someone took his place. Jesus, who is called Christ. Barabbas was set free by a substitute, someone who would stand in his Place. Y'all, this is the gospel. We believe, we talk about the gospel all the time. Gospel literally means good news. Here is the gospel in four words Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Because guess what? You and I are notorious sinners. There's no argument there, there is not one single argument. We are sinners who have sinned against a holy God. We are clearly guilty. We are not deserving of anything except death and separation from a holy God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, Ephesians chapter two, he sent his son to stand in your place and to stand in my place to take the suffering and the separation that you and I deserved to set us free to be our substitute. David Guzik, I wanna read this quote from him. He says this. We can imagine Barabbas in a dark prison cell with a small window waiting to be crucified. In fact, that, that cross that was waiting for Jesus, it was probably prepared for Barabbas. And yet here is Barabbas in his cell waiting to be crucified through the window he can hear the crowd gathered before Pilate not far away from the fortress Antonio where he is imprisoned perhaps he couldn't hear Pilate ask which of you two do you want me to release to you but surely he heard the crowd shout back Barabbas he probably could not hear Pilate ask this follow-up question what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? But he certainly heard the crowd respond, let him be crucified. If all Barabbas heard from his cell was his name shouted by the mob, then let him be crucified. When the soldiers came to his cell, surely, he surely thought it was time for him to die a tortured death. But when the soldiers said, Barabbas, you are a guilty man, but you will be released because Jesus will die in your place. Barabbas knew the meaning of the cross better than most. So here's the question. What shall I do with, his, with Jesus who is called Christ? What are we gonna do with him? Don't listen to the voices that are opposed to Jesus, and there are many. Don't listen to the crowd that you may want to impress, whoever that is. Listen to the voice of God, who maybe, just maybe in this moment, his still, small voice is speaking straight to your heart. Listen to his voice. Don't be like Pilate, don't walk away and do nothing. Because listen, Pilate thought if I just wash my hands and say, I'm not gonna make a decision, I'm innocent of this. You know what? Him believing he was innocent did not make him innocent. Him washing his hands of this left him in the place of being guilty the place that Jesus came to free him of. And so you can walk away from Jesus and say, I'm going to do nothing with him. But what you have done is you have walked away from Jesus and the freedom and life and the forgiveness that he so freely offers to you. What shall I do with Jesus? There's only one good answer to that question there's only one good answer to that question. It's this, let Jesus be the substitute who sets you free. Let Jesus be the substitute to set you free. Turn your heart to the savior who has died in your place. Trust him, let him have your heart. And maybe some of you would say, I, I've given him my heart. I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I made a confession, I put my faith in him, amen and amen. But the question still stands today and tomorrow and every day, the rest of your life, what shall I do with Jesus every single day that you have the opportunity? I have the opportunity to respond. Jesus, I wanna let you be my substitute to set me free. i want to let you live your life through me. And so this morning, my goal in all of this is not to get us emotional. Sorry that I get emotional. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. It's not to get you emotional about what Jesus went through. It is to remind us of the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done so that we will worship him, so that we, we will worship him with all of our hearts. That will be the response to the question, what shall I do with Jesus? And for the next few minutes, we're gonna take some time to do that. Through the Lord's Supper, we're gonna remember what he has done for us. The the goal, the purpose of this time is to just say, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for what you have done for me. We celebrate what he's done in our place. We celebrate the fact that he allowed his body to be scourged and crucified, his blood fully spilt for the full forgiveness of our sins. If you are a follower of Jesus, this time is, is for you. If you're not or if you have questions, please don't feel pressure to participate. Please feel free to just stay where you're at but let me just take a moment to tell us what we're going to, just to give some instruction on what we're going to do here. We're going to, three things this morning, I'm going to ask you to examine and pray. First Corinthians 11 implores us, Paul says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cups. I want to give you a moment to examine your heart. God, is there any sin in my heart that I need to confess? Is there anything that I need to lay at your feet so that I can worship you in this time? Examine and pray, and then take and eat. We'll take the bread and that represents the broken body of Christ. And we will eat and we'll do this in remembrance of him and then we'll drink of the cup that represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And I want us to, to, actually why don't you go ahead and stand with me. I want you to, I want you to read read these verses on the screen with me. Let me read them and I, I want these to be the verses that we're gonna frame this time of communion and celebration and remembrance around 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 22 to 25. It says this. He committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered Mm -hmm. he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Lord, this morning we entered this time of communion with you, we want to enter into this moment of remembrance and celebration, just saying thank you for what you have done for us. Would you meet us in this moment of worship as we open our hearts? Would you help us to honestly examine what is there to lay before you all that is within us, and help us to worship you with full hearts? We pray in Jesus.